You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Let's grab our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 2. It's on page 808 in the Bibles in the seats in front of you. We're going to be studying a passage that I don't think is typically included in an Advent study. I've never heard a passage like this preached during the Advent season. I've never heard it actually preached. So I hope that you will find not only blessing from studying a passage like this, but also be able to see how it connects to the Christmas story as well as the Advent theme of God's abiding with us. If you've attended Ascend for a while, it is no surprise to you when I say that I love movies, especially movies that center on Marvel Comics superheroes. I was talking to a friend this last week and we were comparing notes about the new Hawkeye series on Disney Plus and he just said that Hawkeye is one of his favorites. And I started thinking about that. Who, who is my favorite? And I thought about, you know, that skinny guy that goes into that egg that gets injected with serum and comes out looking like an action figure, Captain America. And of course, he's, he's entertaining. I thought about that guy that I have jealousy for, not only his Goldilocks, but also those veins and those guns, and he has that, that hammer. Wouldn't that hammer come in handy? I mean, you could just raise it up and you get lightning and then you pound it on the ground and all those like demonic forces just explode. Of course, that's Thor. And he's entertaining. And then I think about that billionaire who was able to design this suit that pretty much could do anything for him. It could warm him up after he's been in the, uh, in the water. It can help him eat hot dogs. I mean, it can defeat insurmountable enemies. And, and this is entertaining. But, but I think one of the reasons why my friend said Hawkeye is his favorite is because Hawkeye is relatable. He's a dad. He's a husband. He's just spent a few more hours in the archery area range than anybody else. And I think sometimes people like Hawkeye are attractive to us because we are drawn to them because they are relatable. And what I want this passage to remind us is that our God is relatable. We often talk about God in terms that are not relatable terms. We often talk about God as if he is unapproachable, as if he is unrelatable. But then the other temptation is we try to make God so relatable that the Jesus that we say that we love and worship looks more like our fashion and our design than who he actually is. And so a passage like this allows us to be able to not only see that God is relatable, but to do so in a way that is accurate in a way that is biblical. And so let me read our passage and then explain why I've chosen this to be our fourth Sunday of Advent theme. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, it says, Now when they, the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. 
Then Herod, when he had saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who, were sought, who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so what was spoken of the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. What I hope to show you through this passage is that Christmas reminds us that God's abiding is a relatable presence. God's abiding with his people is a relatable presence. And I want to see you, show that to you, first of all, by showing that it is a relatable unsettled. It is a relatable unsettled that Jesus and his family experienced. Remember that Matthew provides details of Jesus' early life to show that there are parallels between Jesus' life and the progress of Israel. Remember that Matthew focuses in on the generation of Israel that was in Egypt and then it was an exodus from Egypt and he's showing that in parallel, I I believe, at the end of chapter 2 to show something that is significant, to show how Jesus is actually the fulcrum on which the Old Testament and New Testament swing. But these details are given by Matthew specific to his purpose in showing these parallels to the life of Jesus. It says in verse 13, when they had departed, this is the wise men. Remember, they had come to visit he who was born king of the Jews. They were told by the scribes that he was born to be born in Bethlehem. They went to Bethlehem. They gave Jesus and his family incredibly wealthy gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, but instead to make their way back to their homeland of Parthenia in the east leaves Joseph and his wife and his son there in Bethlehem. Now there's a quote in verse 15. The quote seems to be Matthew saying that a prediction of the Old Testament was fulfilled in the details of Jesus' life. It says, out of Egypt I called my son. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that Egypt and Israel had close ties. But what's fascinating about this is that in the Old Testament, the celebration of Israel and Egypt was Israel coming out of Egypt, not going into Egypt. But the details of Jesus' story here are that Jesus is to leave the promised land and actually go to Egypt. So immediately as we follow the details and then draw from the Old Testament, we say, okay, something more is being explained by Matthew. So let's go through the details. It says that in verse 13, the wise men departed and an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream. 
Now consider, if you will, where Joseph is in his progression of life and career. He's just been through nine minutes, uh, nine months of unsettled. Remember, he had been engaged to Mary. This was the love of his life. And then some point in that nine-month period, he was told by Mary, I am pregnant, and this is not by you. And so Joseph processed that. And remember, it says that as he considered these things, an angel appeared to him, just like these words here, and told him, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Okay. But it was still unsettling because, as we'll see on Christmas Eve, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed and registered. And so now Joseph has a very, very pregnant wife that he has to take from where they were to Bethlehem. It's a long journey. Somehow find a place for them to stay, knowing that while they're in Bethlehem, most likely the baby is going to be born. It was a very unsettled season of Joseph's life. He finally found a place where he could put his wife. They could have their baby. It was a manger. It wasn't even their place. It was very unsettled. But we studied last week that Joseph has finally found a house in Bethlehem. He's actually had his budget multiply overnight through the gifts of the wise men. And finally, Joseph is in a time of his life where things have finally settled. We like settled, don't we, in our lives? I remember when I was in seminary and we were considering what would we do after we graduated. There were... A multitude of things we said we were willing to do. We just held on to two. God, do anything, send us anywhere except international missions or church planting. And so you know the rest of the story. You ever had one of those moments in your life where you know God is stirring and you decide to take a leap of faith? And you take that leap of faith, but in the back of your mind, you're like, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm leaping, but, but let the ground be secure when I land, and don't move me again. I remember sitting in church planting orientation, and my wife and I were considering all of this unsettled reality of our lives, and they brought this young church planter in who was a little bit further down the field, and he said, listen, the first year of church planting is chaotic, it's unsettled, but then you settle into this rhythm. Yeah, I don't have rhythm. (laughs) But everything starts to become more settled. And so my wife and I looked at each other and we said, we we, we can do this. You could do anything for a short period of time. But what we learned in year two is what we've learned in year 12. And that is that church planting is never settled. And see, I think what we do in our lives is we we live today with the hope that somehow tomorrow will be a perpetual settled. We were at a conference where Paul Tripp was speaking. He's one of the speakers at the LEAD conference that we have been reminding you about that takes place in February. And Paul Tripp has the ability to whimsically, through that big mustache of his, encourage you and yet slap you over the face. I remember he said these words as Sally and I were dealing with the unsettled reality of church planting as he said, many of you church planters are waging today's battles with the expectation that tomorrow you will have peace. 
And you know when a preacher preaches and you're like, he's speaking about me. I was convicted. I, I'm looking forward to Paul Tripp telling me, well, what do I need to do to get that settled peace? And he said these fateful words that continue to ring in my mind today. There is no peace. And what he meant by that is not that there can't be peace in Christ, not that there can't be gospel peace, but there will never be what the world promises you to be peace. There will never be that day of perpetual absence of conflict. There will never be that perpetual, settled lack of threats. There will never be that peace. And so if you're working today to somehow get there tomorrow, or if you're in a season of that today, and you're willing to do whatever it costs to be able to maintain settled, it's not going to happen. That's not what life is. And so Joseph was reminded of that here in this story. Life has finally settled for this young carpenter peasant. And then an angel shows up in the middle of the night and says, rise. Okay. Take the child and his mother. Okay. Flee to Egypt. Wait, what? Egypt. Now, Egypt in and of itself was not odd for a Jew to consider fleeing to. In fact, we see in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 12, Abraham, during a time of famine, went to where? Egypt. Genesis 42 through 44, when Jacob and his family experienced famine, where did Jacob send his sons? Egypt. When Jacob was told that Joseph is alive, where did they go? Egypt. In fact, history tells us that by this time when Jesus was a boy, there was a sizable community of Jews in Egypt. So just the fact of them fleeing to Egypt was not odd, but, but for a Jew in this day, being in Egypt meant that you were outside of the covenant protection of God. And so here Joseph and his family was finally in a place of settlement, and the angel says, flee to a place that is outside of the covenant protection of God and remain there until I tell you. And so Joseph is thinking, don't you think he might have asked the question, why? The angel answers that. For Herod was about to search for the child to destroy him. Beloved, would you remember this? That God always has the information we don't have. He always does. Joseph didn't have this information. We have the information because we've studied these passages before. But Joseph didn't. He's finally getting a good night of rest. Mary, his son, they're sleeping. His retirement account is looking pretty good. And now... The angel gives him information that he didn't have. Beloved, always let that be an encouragement to you. God always has the information we don't have. And so, verse 14, he rose and took the child and his mother, and they departed to Egypt. So it begs the question, why do we find this quote from Hosea 11.1? Well, Matthew assists and Hosea assists. Let me first of all explain how Hosea assists. Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 gives a prophecy that is concerning the northern tribes of Israel. Hosea 
is a passage and a book in the Old Testament that highlights the, the adultery of Israel against their covenant-keeping God. And Hosea is giving judgment and saying that Israel will be taken away to Assyria. But just as Israel was brought out of Egypt, brought out of bondage, so will the northern tribes of Israel be brought out of their bondage of Assyria. And what Hosea is doing in that statement is causing the reader to look back so that they can look forward. In fact, could you write that down? Oftentimes, Matthew, when he is citing the Old Testament, oftentimes, when New Testament authors are citing the Old Testament, they're not simply saying there's a prediction in the Old Testament that the details that they're giving are fulfilling. What they're often doing is saying that the patterns of the past and the character that that displays will continue to be the character that will take care of your situation today and tomorrow. And so Hosea was not speaking specifically about Egypt, specifically about the northern tribes going to Egypt. He's drawing those original readers and listeners to understand that just as how God provided for Israel and Egypt in the past, he will do so today and in the future. And so Matthew is doing the same thing here by referencing Hosea 11, as well as a phrase that I would encourage you to circle or underline. And that is the phrase, by night. Do you see it there in the text? In Matthew chapter 2. Now it would seem that all this is doing is just alerting the reader to the time on the clock when Joseph and his family left. But the grammar is fascinating. The grammar is a very unique combination of words that would have alerted the original audience to the reason for the fleeing in the middle of the night. The reason for fleeing in the middle of the night is because of the imminent danger. Was there ever a time in the Old Testament where God's people were told to flee in the middle of the night because of imminent danger? The Passover. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 3. And so what Matthew is doing is alerting the reader of this original gospel to the past because the past and the patterns of God's character inform us to how his character will impact us today and for our future. And so what Matthew is saying here is that in the details of Jesus' young life, just as the details of the prophecy in the time of Hosea, we are reminded that God's pattern will continue and his character will continue today. What a reminder this is, that God's people have always lived a life of unsettled. And Jesus and his family are no different. So friend, let's not make an idol of settled. Let's understand that 2021 will have moments of unsettled for you and for me. But let's remember that the God who dwells with his people can relate to us. It is a personal abiding because he can relate to our unsettled. Number two, it's a relatable uncomfort. It's a relatable uncomfort I see the concept of comfort in verse 18. Look at what it says in the second half. Rachel was weeping for her children, but she refused to be comforted. This idea of comfort is an idea of lack of pain or suffering. 
And so as you read this passage, and if you know the details of why Matthew is referring to Jeremiah 31, you know that there's a a time of lack of comfort for a lot of people in that Bethlehem region. And so why is Matthew drawing from this Jeremiah 31 quote as he unpacks the details of Jesus' life, especially when chapter 31 of Jeremiah has no reference to children being killed? Well, I think the focus here is on comfort and the uncomfort of Jesus' life. Look at verse 16. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And I love the grammar here again because the grammar means his actions now are guaranteed to lead to greater actions soon. It's the idea of a teapot. When you start to hear a teapot on a stovetop begin to whistle, you know that there is continued action that is going to be greater. The lid is going to pop. You're going to see steam coming out. That is the grammar that Matthew chooses to use to describe how Herod reacted. Herod reacts by understanding he has pie in his face, and everybody knew that when Herod had pie in his face, something greater is going to happen. And tragically, look at what it says. It says that he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under. You ever wonder why none of the other gospels reference this event? You ever wonder why the authors of the New Testament never point to this event? Well, I think one of the reasons for that is because we, in our modern context, have a misunderstanding of what actually took place. Don't don't you imagine that there were thousands of families that were impacted by this? Don't you imagine that there's like this, this unified weeping that could be heard and would rise up above the, the noises of the, of the evening? Well, history tells us that the population of Bethlehem and the surrounding region was likely less than 1,000 people. So most likely, the number of male children that were actually executed in this were less than 20. And so while that was tragic for those 20, and while that would have impacted the community, it's not what we typically picture in our mind, that this is a, a national emergency. And that is interesting when you look down at what Matthew says from Jeremiah 31. That Rachel is weeping for her children. Rachel, in a Jewish context, is often associated with the entire nation of Israel. And so why would Matthew go to an Old Testament passage talking about national weeping to describe an event that probably only impacted 20 or less families? Because I think there's a theology that is being communicated here. A theology that is relatable. Have you ever experienced something in your life that just knocks the wind out of you? Over the last 18 months, I'm sure all of us can point to something. But it's also true that we all have different thresholds, don't we? Hopefully I'll use this as the last illustration of this kind, but masks. Remember masks. Some of you still wear masks. That's absolutely fine, but... That was a reminder to us that we have different thresholds. Some people are like, I don't care, I'll wear masks, especially in the winter. That actually keeps my face warmer. 
Others have skin sensitivity. Others struggled with breathing. And we were reminded over the last 18 months that we all have different thresholds of pain, of tolerance, but every one of us have some threshold where if it's crossed, it takes the wind out of us. And most of you have had an experience like that. If you haven't, just live long enough. And usually when we have those moments and we can see that people are suffering, we immediately rush to comfort them, don't we? We immediately want to rush to remove the pain, to remove the suffering, to use phrases such as, it's going to get better. Your problem is going to be solved. I hear this a lot at funerals. They're in a better place. But what I think Matthew is drawing from this Jeremiah passage and the details that he's providing of Jesus' life, that is that life under the sun is never guaranteed to be perpetual comfort. There will be times of comfort, but there will be times of pain. You can write down Jeremiah 31, 15. That's the citation that he uses in Matthew 18, or 2.18, and what's fascinating about that chapter, it is, it is a chapter of incredible hope. In fact, the prophecy by Jeremiah is a rather painful prophecy. In fact, Jeremiah is referred to as the what prophet? Does anybody know? The weeping prophet. He, he wrote a book called Lamentations. So you read chapter after chapter of negative, negative, judgment, judgment. Jeremiah being put in a well that was muddy and being left there for dead. Him being slapped. Him being told that the people would obey and then they trick him. And they take him down to Egypt. I mean, this prophecy is not something you want to read if you want to just get a shot in the arm of encouragement. Man, I'm I'm checking all the COVID lists, aren't I? (laughs) So we finally get a chapter of hope, Jeremiah 31. Why in the middle of a chapter of hope do we get a verse like this? A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Because Jeremiah was reminding his audience the same thing that Matthew is reminding his and us. And that is, life will be filled with comfort and uncomfort. Rama was a staging point for prisoners to be deported. Family would be gathered in Israel before being deported to Babylon, and they would be gathered in Rama. And so family members would gather as their sons and their daughters and their fathers and their mothers and their grandparents and their cousins and their uncles and their aunts would be gathered at Rama, knowing that that would be the last time most likely that you would see them. And so as a nation, Rama was associated with weeping. Rama was associated with deportation. Rama was associated with slavery. And what Jeremiah was reminding his readers is that there are times in life where God's people are uncomfortable. But God will always be present in the times of uncomfort and in the times of comfort. Let's move beyond our horizontal expectations to see the character of God. 
And so as we arrive back in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew is not saying this is the predicted fulfillment of that Jeremiah passage. He's saying, remember the patterns of the past because God's character continues today. And what's fascinating about this is this one's a little complicated, isn't it? Because Jesus and his mother and father were comforted. They were protected. But what a foreshadowing this is. As Luke 2 tells us in the prophecy to Mary that there will be a sword that will pierce Mary's side through the death of her own son. No parent ever wants to experience the death of their child. It is arguably one of the most painful experiences a human being can experience. This and the understanding of the rest of the story of Christ is a reminder that our God can relate to us and he can relate to our uncomfort. Number three, the personal abiding presence of God is a relatable, unprestigious, a relatable, unprestigious Let me explain that by unpacking these verses that are often overlooked. It says in verse 23, he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, and we're familiar with that, especially throughout our study of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is often referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. It says that he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, if you've read the Old Testament or you're familiar with it, you know how unique and unexpected this is. Because up to this point, the three previous, this was to fulfill quotes, can be found in the Old Testament. Each word found in the Old Testament in a specific verse But you can scan the entire Old Testament and you see no words such as this. In fact, there is no reference to a town of Nazareth in the Old Testament. So why does Matthew introduce this concept the same way he did through the other three Old Testament citations that these details of Jesus' life was to fulfill what the prophets had said that he would be called a Nazarene? You'll have to figure it out for yourself. Let's pray. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I think it's significant. Look at verse 19. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. And by now, Joseph's like, all right, what you got for me? Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. So he does. He rose, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel, back to the geographical representation of God's covenant protection. But, verse 22, when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. The reason for this is assisted by history. History tells us that Archelaus, Herod's son, was actually a very jealous individual just like his dad. But Archelaus did not have something that his father had, and that was the official title of king of the Jews that Rome had given him. And so Archelaus was always looking up, always envious, always leery, always willing to do whatever he needed to do to try to achieve this title. And so Joseph knows that about Archelaus, and he's afraid to go back to Bethlehem. And so he goes, after being warned by God, most likely by an angel, 
to go to the district of Galilee. But Joseph decides to land in a town that is not prestigious. In fact, you can write down John chapter 1 and verse 46. A future disciple of Jesus by the name of Nathanael is told by Philip, come and see Jesus of Nazareth, the one who is Messiah. And Nathanael's response reveals the stereotype of Nazareth of Jesus' day. And Nathanael says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth was a small town. It was mostly a rural agricultural community. In fact, it was filled with Gentiles. When the Jews came back from Babylon, they came back to a place that did not have an existing town. There were Gentiles there, and they decided, we're going to start a town here. And what they would do when they came back from, from, uh, from exile is they would call their town something tying them in to some ancestry of the Old Testament. And as I said, there's no record of a Nazareth in the Old Testament. And so what the Jews did in establishing this town of Nazareth is they tied into Messiah, they tied into David by calling the town, look at the first three letters of the name of the town, Nazareth. And then it says at the end of verse 23, he will be called a Nazarene. The Hebrew term Natsar means branch. I would ask you to write down these verses, Isaiah 11.1. 1. Jeremiah 23, 5, and Zechariah 6, 12. The Messiah is closely tied to this concept of a branch in the Old Testament. The branch would come out of the stump of Jesse, the branch in Zechariah, the branch in Jeremiah. And so this concept of branch was closely tied to Messiah. It was closely tied to the line of David. And so these Jews who came back to this area and started this town says, we are going to associate not just with any Jew, but with the Jew, with David, pointing toward the Messiah. And we're going to call this place Nazareth. And I think what Matthew is doing here is reminding us that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords does not fit into our understanding of a category of prestige. He is the rightful Netzer. He is the branch. He is the king, but he comes from a town that is very unassuming, the branch city. Friends, I think we have to be careful as Americans not to be driven by prestige. We can often be about prestige. I was a, a business major in my undergrad. I focused on marketing. And one of the things that our professors constantly reminded us is your job is to convince people that your service or product will change their life. That's why so many of the advertisements have sports heroes and entertainment stars and people who are prestigious in the community because they're arguing that if you take that product, if you follow that service, you will be just like this person of great prestige. It is the lie that something this world has to offer you will give you the prestige that your soul is is pursuing. And friends, with this reminder by Matthew tells us is that Jesus was unprestigious. The very one who had the greatest prestige actually came from the most unprestigious town. The most unprestigious, horizontally speaking, heritage. 
Friends, let's be careful that we are not pursuing prestige in our lives. When your prestige is threatened, how do you respond? And doesn't it sound like this is a broken record? It seems like week after week after week, this is the same application. But beloved, we live in a time when there are so many temptations for prestige. There are so many people who have their whole identity wrapped up in prestige and what other people think of them. They try to put on the face. They try to wear the brands, drive the cars, live in the neighborhoods, have the jobs that somehow puts off a persona of prestige. But the fact of the matter is, is that our only prestige is that we are associated with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The reality is that no matter how much education we have, no matter what kind of careers we have, no matter how much money we have in the bank, no matter what possessions we have, every part of that is gifted to us. The very fact that you and I exist is a gift. You ever want to get to a place of humility? Just be reminded of the fact that you did not choose to exist. You ever want to get to a place of humility? Just be reminded of the fact that you did not choose to be born in America. You ever want to be brought to a place of humility? Just remember what the Bible says. You did not choose God. God chose you. And so before you know it, the story of Jesus reminds us that he can relate to our unprestige and our only prestige is our association with him.